If you would, please, would you turn in your Bibles once again to Luke chapter 1, verse 46. Luke chapter 1, verse 46. Dawn and I did something last weekend that we have not done before. We went Black Friday shopping. Now, I know this is no of no I know this is of no interest to you, but we were long overdue for a mattress. And knowing that a mattress, that's a big ticket item. We wanted to take advantage of the discount prices that are available on that Black Friday weekend. So we went up to Furniture Row, that's uh, up in Milford along Route 1, and boy, that road is a nightmare on that weekend. But the long and short of it is we found a great deal on a name brand product, and so we made the purchase. And we were both very relieved that it went so smoothly, we got it at a good price, and uh, we were able to get out of the store really quick. So we got in the car, we're headed home, and I was in a good mood. I'm normally in a good mood, but I was, in a, I was especially in a good mood uh, first because it was a relatively painless experience. I've mentioned before, I don't like shopping. I, I don't like being in stores. So it was a relatively pain, painless experience, so I was really happy about that. And secondly, I, I'm thinking that I might be done with my Christmas shopping after this major Christmas shopping coup, right? So anyway, we're driving home, and after seeing the stores decorated for Christmas and feeling like I've pulled off this major coup, I'm in a festive mood, and I say to Dawn, how about a little Christmas music? So I I flip on the knob on the radio, and I don't know why I make this mistake so often. I I think I make it every year. I turn on the radio, and I actually think I'm going to hear Christmas music. Of course, there's a couple of radio stations on there, playing what they call Christmas music, but as we all know, what they're playing on the radio has nothing to do with Christmas, or more accurately, has nothing to do with Christ. Now, I don't know why I think I'm going to find these sacred carols, like the one we just sang, on the radio, and maybe they used to be played on the radio. At this point, I'm not really quite sure I can remember. But out of curiosity, I, I went to the website, of uh, the station that we were listening to, which is currently on a 24-7 Christmas music format. They play the same songs over and over again. So I wanted to find out, what is the most frequently played song on this radio station? Can anybody guess what the number one song is played? Jingle Bells. Bells. Those are good guesses. Santa Claus would come down, another good guess? Rocking around the Christmas tree. <laughs> now, that is not a Christmas song. In fact, that's not even a good song. That's a miserable song. Something about a hopper. I don't know what they're singing about. But apparently, that is what passes for Christmas music for most of the world. Now, I'm sure we could quickly compile a long list of miserable songs that are said to be about Christmas. You um, just gave a bunch of them. You left out the one about Grandma getting run over. (laughs) Now, what all these songs have in common is that they mention the word Christmas. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. 
I'll Be Home for Christmas. And I happen to like those two songs. They're, they're pretty pleasant-sounding songs, but they have nothing to do with Christ. They have nothing to do with God. And so today, I'd like us to consider the passage of Scripture that is referred to as the Magnificat. In this passage, Mary has learned that she has been chosen by God to give birth to the Messiah. And so as she anticipates the coming of Christ, she is also anticipating the very first Christmas. And what is so wonderfully significant is that Mary breaks into song and we are made witness to the very first Christmas carol. And as we explore the Magnificat, we will discover what a Christmas song ought to be about, and that is worship. Not rocking around the Christmas tree, but worshiping God. And as we consider Mary's song, we will be reminded that God is worthy to be praised. He's worthy to be praised because of what he's done but more importantly, because of who he is. And as we listen to Mary's song, we will be reminded of four elements of worship. So let's look, please, at Luke 1, verse 46. And as we look at verse 46, Mary begins this great Christmas hymn like this. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. The first element of worship that Mary models for us is that genuine worship is internal rather than external. True worship comes from the heart rather than merely going through the motions. Notice that Mary's worship comes from her soul. Notice that her worship comes from her spirit. Look again at verse 46, please. Mary says, or she sings actually, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. There's a matter that is of considerable concern to me, and it regards what people call or believe to be worship, and in fact may not be worship at all. It has been my observation that some people, after the church service, if they are asked what they thought of the service, they may respond, Oh, it was excellent. The worship was fantastic. And what they may be describing is that the volume of the electric guitars and the hammering beat of the drums caused a great excitement among the people. But excitement is not worship. But don't think that I'm being critical of what is referred to as contemporary worship. There are many contemporary songs that are theologically sound and impactful. 
Because this church sings from a hymnal, there's no guarantee that we are engaged in worship either. Some will think that because we sing words that were written in the 1800s, that somehow God must find that music more sacred. And so as participants, we might think, well, this is the right kind of music. This is worship. But the issue is not whether a church or its members sing a contemporary chorus or a classic hymn. What matters is not what comes from the lips, but what comes from the heart. If you're not sure what I'm saying is true, listen to God's own word about the issue. Through the prophet Isaiah, God says this, These people come near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. When we sing our praises, we do well to make sure that we are not singing a particular style of worship because it matches our preference. Because if we're singing a particular hymn or a particular style of music because it matches our preference, we may be singing for ourselves rather than God. Neither should we participate in a time of worship because that is what is expected. Because we may be merely mouthing the words without really contemplating the impact, the theology of what we are saying to God when we sing. If we're going to come before God, we do well to check our hearts, make sure that we're coming to God in a spirit of worship. As we come to the second aspect of worship that Mary models for us, it will demonstrate how one's heart can be prepared for worship. And that is by having the proper perspective. When we have a proper view of God's majesty, in comparison to our lowly estate, then our hearts are prepared for worship. Let's look again at verse 46, please. Mary sings this, My soul magnifies the Lord. If you're looking at the NIV, you have my soul glorifies the Lord. Now, both glorify and magnify are good translations. But I will continue with the word magnify because it runs closer to the Greek word used in the original text. It is because of the word magnifies that this passage, this hymn, is called the Magnificat. Let me repeat that. It is because of the word magnifies that this hymn is called the Magnificat. The Greek word Uh, Magnificat, I'm sorry, not Greek, but Latin. The Latin word Magnificat is the equivalent of our word magnify. The Greek word is megaluno. The Greek word that is translated for us as magnify is the Greek word megaluno. And what does megaluno mean? It means to enlarge, to magnify. Now, we will recognize the prefix 
meaning the first part of the word megaluno, because we've adopted the word mega into our English language. For example, when we want to enlarge our voice, we speak through a megaphone. If we go to McDonald's and we want to enlarge the size of a drink, we tell them to mega-size it. Mega-luno means to enlarge something. And so to mega-luno God is to enlarge him. But we need to be careful not to misunderstand this word because when we hear the word magnify, it is possible it may create the wrong image in our minds. We might envision a magnifying glass, which is used to enlarge something that is small. But we will conclude that is the wrong image because God is not small. He is infinitely magnificent. Listen to what Moses declared in Deuteronomy chapter 10. The Lord your God is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. He is the great, mighty, and awesome God. There's no smallness to God. And so, listen, the only smallness is in our own hearts. When it comes to comprehending and appreciating the magnificence of God. And so what needs enlarging, what needs magnifying, is our appreciation of God. And so when we see and hear the mighty and powerful deeds of God, our appreciation for him, our love for him is enlarged. And when we increasingly appreciate how enormously powerful God really is, we will magnify him. We will enlarge him. We will glorify him because he is enlarged in our hearts and therefore we worship him. One more important detail from verse 46. Let's notice that Mary says this, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Do you see that in the second part of 46? My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Martin Luther, Martin Luther, once said that God's grace could be found in the pronouns of the Bible. Notice what Mary does not say. She does not say, my spirit rejoices in God the Savior. She says, she uses the pronoun, the personal pronoun, my Savior. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You see, it's one thing to discuss God in the form of a title, the Savior. It's a different thing entirely to refer to God as my Savior. And that's what Mary does. Now, despite the teaching of the Catholic Church that suggests that Mary was without sin, it cannot be any clearer than here in Mary's own song that everyone is in need of a Savior, including Mary herself. Each one of us, every one of us must call upon Christ to save. Even the greatest work 
that any human being was ever called to do to give birth to the Messiah, that work was insufficient to save. It is only by grace, through faith, that we are saved, not by works. Which brings us to the third aspect of true worship, which Mary models for us. We engage in true worship when we recognize our own humble estate, our own humble position. I fear that because of our pride, it can be difficult for us to truly engage in worship. I think when we worship, what we are more likely to do can be more accurately described as giving honor. I'm trying to draw a distinction between worship and giving honor. Now, of course, we are told by Scripture that we are to give God glory and honor. But too often, our worship might be a matter of giving God honor as if he is a peer, as if he is one of us. And when I say giving honor, I mean something like we might see at an awards ceremony, such as when someone is honored at a company party because they have sold the most widgets. Or somebody might be honored at the company because they're having a retirement dinner for a man who has worked there for 40 years. And so at this award ceremony, someone might say, let's raise our glasses as we honor the man of the hour. And so in a similar way, we might come to church and think, let's raise our voices as we honor God for all his years of service. That's not worship, is it? Worship requires that we realize and confess who we are in comparison to God. We are not like him in the sense that he is high and lifted up and we are of lowly estate. I suggest that Mary's song, she honors God, but she does much more than that. She worships God. As Mary magnifies the Lord, as she megalunos God, she magnifies him, enlarges him, makes sure she understands how, how powerful and mighty he is. She simultaneously acknowledges her own lowly estate. Look again at verse 48, please. Mary declares the reason her soul magnifies the Lord, the reason her spirit rejoices. 48. For he has regarded the lowly state of his servant, his maidservant. For behold, she says, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. Why? For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Now we've got to be careful to make a very Important distinction. Mary is not saying that God chose her because she's humble. Instead, what Mary is saying is that God chose her despite 
her lowly position. She's confessing that she possesses no special quality that would suggest that she deserves to be chosen by God for this special service. She has done nothing that would cause God to choose her for this singular responsibility. Instead, what Mary recognizes is that the only reason she has found favor, that's what favor is about, favor is grace, is because of the mercy of God. In a similar way, God's grace, the miracle of his sovereign choosing, should, ask, should cause every Christian to ask in grateful wonder, God, why did you choose me? Why did you call me to yourself? I've done nothing to deserve it. In fact, I've done everything to deserve your condemnation. I've failed so often and so miserably, and yet, while I was still a sinner, you died for me. When we consider all that God has done, how can our hearts not melt with gratitude? How can we not praise him? How can we not worship God in spirit? And in truth. Now here's a question. Is there anyone here, besides me, of course, is there anyone here who will admit to having made poor choices in our lives? Oh, you're raising your hands. That's very bold of you. Well done. I like that kind of vulnerability, that transparency. Perhaps there are even people here besides me who will admit that we have made shameful mistakes in our past. But for those who have called upon the name of the Lord, or will call upon the name of the Lord, and confess those sins, He is faithful to forgive. The Bible promises that. He is faithful to forgive. Not because we deserve to be forgiven. Not because we've taken responsibility and confessed those sins but only because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. He took the penalty that we deserved upon himself so that we could have forgiveness and eternal life through him. And when we are forgiven, we are forgiven not because of our confession, but because of him. And when we are forgiven, isn't that reason for us to worship not just with our lips, but with our hearts. And why did God do this for us? Because we deserve it? But so that each of us could proclaim, just as Mary does in verse 49, he, listen, he who is mighty has done great things for me. Can you claim that? If you are forgiven, you can say, he who is mighty has done great things for me. Why? Holy is his name. We go on to verse 50. Mary declares in her song, God's mercy extends to those who fear him. Now this concept of fearing God, it presents a difficulty for some people. So it will be helpful for us to consider it. 
Now, in order to do that, allow me to remind you of another verse that presents no difficulty, and people are very eager to hear this verse. And this verse from Scripture comes from 1 John, where we're told that God is love. You familiar with that verse? God is love. And, of course, that is absolutely true. There is no greater, there is no purer love than God's love. And the Scripture tells us God is love. Which makes some people, including Christians, born-again Christians, wonder, if God is perfect in his love, why then should we fear him? Well, a few years ago, a few years ago, I was attending a Bible conference where the speaker handled this topic very well, and so I'll share it with you. He said it is absolutely true that God is love, but we have to remember that while this is true, that God is perfectly loving, that is just one attribute of his many perfect attributes. But many people want to make God's love his chief attribute. They want to make his love the, the, the chief characteristic of all his perfect characteristics. And as a result, some will use God's love as a strategy for excusing their own desires and failures. It may sound something like this. You know what? I don't think God minds if I continue to do what I want to do. Even though the Bible says it's wrong, I think God will be okay with it. You know why? Because God is a God of love, and he wants me to be happy. But what it's telling is that the book of Revelation tells us that in heaven there is surrounding the throne of God what are described as four living creatures. And they have the privilege of worshiping God day and night. They never stop worshiping him. And what do those four living creatures sing out? What do they proclaim? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And so what do they proclaim about him? He's holy, holy, holy. If it were possible for God to have a chief attribute, and I'm not sure that he could, but if it were possible to have one attribute that encompasses all of his other perfections, it would be his holiness. And when we recognize who God is, that he is perfectly holy, and we compare his holiness to our fallen state, when we compare his infinite power to our pathetic weakness, how could we not fear him? But Mary, with her inspired wisdom, declares a wonderful and sublime truth that is available to those who do fear him. And this is in contrast to the members of the unbelieving world who will not fear God. They will dismiss God. They will suggest that he does not exist. But for those who fear God, she sings, God's mercy extends to these. Mary says, inspired by the Spirit, 
God's mercy extends to those who fear him. For those who receive God's mercy, there is an unimaginable blessing. Through the Father's mercy, we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Listen, please, to the words of the Apostle Peter. Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope. That is all because of God's mercy. And that mercy originates when we fear Him, meaning we recognize He alone is God. We are not His peer. Mary continues her song of worship. She praises God for being what I like to refer to as the God of reversals. Look at, look at verse 51 and following, please. And when I say the God of reversals, I mean that God has a way of turning the tables. 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich, he sent them away empty. You see, God has a way of turning the tables. He makes it his business to pull down the prideful and the arrogant from their lofty positions. While he lifts up and he exalts the humble. Scripture tells us repeatedly, doesn't it? And tells us in many places that God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. You see, God often bypasses the rich, the powerful, the proud. And instead, he chooses to bring his mercy and grace to those who recognize that we deserve nothing in this world, let alone his salvation. You see, the miracle of Christmas is that God breaks into history in the form of a child, a lowly child in a manger. He ushers in a whole new world through this child. You see, God comes to turn this world upside down. Or if you prefer, to turn this world right side up again. God is not going to allow things to remain as they are. God comes to challenge the expectations of this corrupted world. Christ comes to usher in a world where the meek inherit the earth. Not the powerful of the proud, or the proud. He ushers in a world where the poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. And so Mary leads us in a song of praise for all who will put their faith in God and in his Christ. It's a song of vindication. Vindication means God will put all things right. It may not happen during our lifetimes, but there is a day coming when God will put all things right, and he does that through his Son. 
In 51, it says, he scatters those who are proud. 52, he brings down rulers. In 53, he sends the rich away empty. You see, God's judgment comes upon those who deny God, who refuse to fear him, who refuse to humble themselves before him. But for those who do fear him, for those who will magnify him and glorify him, who will receive Christ as Lord and Savior. For these, Mary says, God does great things. Again, in verse 51 and following, for these, God extends his mercy. He lifts up the humble. He fills the hungry with good things. And the greatest filling is not with the things of this world, but with his Holy Spirit. He fills the hearts of those who believe in him. Listen what Isaiah said in chapter 57. This is God speaking through Isaiah. Through Isaiah. God says, I live in a high and holy place, but I also live with him who is humble and lowly in spirit. Wow, that's a powerful verse. God is not only high and lifted up, he lives in the hearts of those who believe in him. And all who recognize what Christ has done, who magnify God, and in so doing, recognize our humble estate, God fills his heart, fills our hearts with himself. In the last two verses of Mary's song, she remembers the faithfulness of God. In verse 54, she sings this, He has helped his servant Israel, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. She praises God for keeping his promise. God made a promise to Abraham more than 18 centuries prior to this event. We know from the 12th chapter of Genesis that God made a covenant with Abraham. And in that covenant, God made an important promise. He told Abraham, In you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And now, Mary acknowledges that that blessing had come, that that promise had been fulfilled. The Messiah, the Christ, He who is Savior and Lord had come or was about to come. We often lament that our prayers are not answered or not answered according to our own timing. Perhaps we've ever, perhaps we may have asked at some point, God, are you listening to me? Why do I pray and I I don't hear the answers to my prayer? Well, look, Mary is celebrating God's faithfulness because God has answered a promise that he made 1,800 years before. You see, God will answer our prayers. He will fulfill all his promises, but in his time, his time, not ours. But that doesn't mean we should not trust him. We should trust him. We should not fear, because I've mentioned it before, I'll say it again, God keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. Has he made a promise to you? Has he promised you heaven? 
If you have put your faith in Christ, He's promised you heaven, He will keep that promise. We come now to the fourth and final aspect of worship that is modeled for us in Mary's song. And it's this. That our worship should be continual. Let's go back for a moment to verse 46. Notice again where Mary declares, My soul magnifies the Lord. Now when we considered the Greek word there, translated for us as magnify, we realized that it or discovered it means to enlarge God, but really to enlarge our hearts. But what I want to point out here is the verb tense. Because the verb tense here suggests an ongoing action. And so if we were to translate this phrase, we could read it as follows. My soul continually, it unceasingly magnifies the Lord. Which tells us that Mary's song did not end with the birth of her child. In fact, I believe that her song continued to, believe, continued to build to an amazing crescendo as the plan of God continued to unfold. In the same way, when we realize all that God has done for us, all that he's doing for us now, and all that he will do for us, it ought to spur us to unceasingly magnify him, to glorify him, and to worship him. During this Advent season, as we celebrate Christ's birth and his ministry, let this be a time of worship. As the rest of the world is running around for their mattresses, let this be a time of worship. Sure, there'll be sales. Sure, there'll be things that we want to buy for our loved ones. But let's not get caught up in that. Let us devote ourselves to worship. And even after December 25th passes, we will continue to worship. After the Christmas songs have left the radio, even after we stop singing the sacred hymns of Christmas in this sanctuary, we will continue to celebrate Because we do not merely celebrate Christmas, we worship Christ. We who have Christ in our hearts can worship him at any time, and we can worship him all the time. And here's why. Because each of us, if we have Christ, can sing just as Mary did, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your table this morning, your table of holy communion, we come with thankful hearts for all that you have done. And for this reason, Lord, we also come with a heart of worship, For you alone could do what we could not do for ourselves. And that is to give us life, to give us forgiveness to all who believe. Amen.